This episode of Idle Weekend is brought to you by Bombas, the best place to get cool, creative, and above all, comfortable socks. Go to getbombas.com slash weekend for 20% off your first order. Well, hello, Idle Weekenders. Dear listeners, dear readers, dear people who send us wonderful emails, it is Halloween time. And I am currently streaming 72 hours of games because of my new job at Waypoint. So you can probably see me doing that maybe when you hear this episode go up. But because we were so busy this weekend, we thought this would be prime time. You know, like just the best time ever to actually let you listen to a fabled sort of preview episode of Idle Weekends. We started recording these actually well before the show started, you know, sort of in December. So we did a Halloween episode last year, Halloween of 2015, that was just a barnstormer. At least we thought it was pretty good. So we thought, hey, nobody has time to record this week, and it's Halloween, so what a great idea. What if we just gave you that older episode, and it's just like it's 2015 all over again? It works out perfectly because, frankly, there were some amazing horror games that came out last year. We talked about Soma. We talked about horror in general. We talked about all sorts of good stuff. We even talked a little bit about, well, you'll hear it. You'll hear all about it. So without further ado, we present to you the Halloween 2015 episode Happy Dishonored Halloween, everybody. Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host, Rob Zachney, on the newest podcast from the Idle Thumbs Network. Tonight, we're getting seasonally appropriate with these spooks and scares from this year's crop of horror games. Rob, I have not stopped playing horror games all throughout Shocktober. I don't know how you're doing that, because to be quite <laughs> frank, like, I have a very limited tolerance for horror games because I just can't stand the relentless tension, and eventually uh, I just have to I just have to tap out. Yeah, it's really, uh, it's something I hated until pretty recently in my life, actually. Like, I, I did not like horror. As a kid, as a teenager, it was terrifying to me. I had really bad nightmares. I definitely thought the alien from Aliens was going to kill me every time I took a bath. We had a skylight. It looked scary. Um, but but late, like sort of lately in life, I've just been obsessively playing horror games, watching horror movies, reading horror fiction, and just sort of loving it. I don't know what happened, but it just stuck. And in sort of in my job, I've been sort of the horror girl lately. I've been playing everything. I've been, you know, at least trying to get my hands on every little game that's come out that looks spooky or creepy or weird, which whatever that says about me, I guess, is uh, kind of awesome. Right. Uh, so <laughs> what's what's been at the top of your list lately? I know that um, a little while ago we, we talked about Soma as, as sort, yeah. sort of big one. That's big name, of course. That's that's the amnesia people uh, yes. making that one. Uh, what's uh, What else in, in, in the land of horror has, has been kind of, uh, you know, giving you chills up your spine as it were? Because... I, I think this is this is a this is a this is a genre I tend to avoid a little bit, sure, and I, sure. I pay attention to the big ones, but I'm probably not catching everything. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's actually a lot of really awesome smaller games this year coming out. There was a really cool game called Masochizia, which was a sort of playable visual novel with a twine-like kind of interface. Uh, it was really beautiful. It had this gorgeous sort of almost Edward Gorey art style to it, the sort of muted pastel 
art style where you play as this, you know, this little boy who he might be a killer and he might not be because he's he's had this horrible home life. And it's really interesting and really intense. And going along with that, I'm seeing so much influence from PT last year in a lot of the sort of smaller games that are probably cropping up now, like in October or earlier in the year, that sort of thing. A lot of sort of domestic themes. I'm seeing a lot of actually even mechanics sort of lifted from PT. So did you play PT last year? Uh, no, and it's really frustrating. So actually, even as we speak, my, my PS4 is updating because I, I just got one. But from my point sure. of view, I've gotten it too late, right? Like I, the, the PT mm-hmm. ship has sailed uh, yeah. and, there's, and there's no way to play it uh, again. So uh, tell me a little bit about it. And I guess what are, what are other developers going to school on? Because my understanding was PT was like super small, like experimentally small. It was, it was yeah. like a hallway game. Yeah, basically. Well, all right, PT came out last year, and it was this, you know, really beautiful, really weird first-person horror game, and really, really simple, almost no mechanical depth. You're just walking around, sort of experiencing this world. You know, walking simulator, quote-unquote, as people would say. Uh, But it was really, really terrifying, partially because you kept walking around the same exact hallway uh, for ad infinitum, but... What made it worse was that every single time you went through that hallway, something would change and something would change. So it looked pretty normal at first, like a pretty normal domestic space. And then, of course, a horrifying ghost would show up or all these insects would start crawling away from you. Just really creepy things. And that sort of domestic setting really just, I don't know, it really made it all hit home. Like it looked like anybody's hallway, you know, any sort of middle-class American family's hallway. Well, that's a super effective thing, right? You take the, yeah. you, you take the uh, trappings of mundanity, and then you just sort of twist it a few degrees off its axis and then yes. keep twisting. And I think this is, you know, this is one of the reasons that, like, I mean, this is why, like, the 80s were such a golden period of, of horror, right? Of, yes. of, of suspense and horror. Uh, because a lot of them start in, in these scenes of really, like, kind of the white picket fence America, right? Like, what what is Poltergeist except the experience of, like, a new subdivision? Absolutely. Well, and even Wes Craven's movies were totally into that, you know, especially once you start looking into, like, the lives of teenagers and, and what teenager, normal teenagers do, so on and so forth. It, like, really, really gets creepy the further you go in and the further you just sort of dig your nails into what we think of as normal and bits and pieces of normal life. I played a game called Stairs recently that, uh, you know, another first-person sort of exploration game that that entirely took P.T.'s sort of aesthetic. Uh, instead of setting it in a house, it was set in sort of a factory, but it had the same idea of the infinite hallway. You know, you keep going down the stairs, but it's the same hallway over and over again. And instead of a ghost, there's just this shadow sort of against a wall. And you realize, of course, something terrible happened here. And, of course, there was some domestic abuse or some sort of, of, you know, real life sort of thing going on there. But I won't spoil it or anything, but it's it's so effective when, when these games are actually taking these bits and pieces. And I think it's really cool that, you know, a game, PC was a game, even though it was actually sort of a piece of marketing for a game that will now never come out. But it it was influential enough to sort of have made an impact on people and on game developers that they're starting to make these things that speak directly to those same fears. I want to talk a little bit about another game, actually, that took 
maybe a little bit of P.T.'s influence and also, believe it or not, uh, The Babadook, which is okay. a movie I loved from last year. It was one of my favorite movies from last year. So in the park, again, it's a mechanically simple game. You're just walking around this sort of abandoned amusement park and you are a single mother and you're looking for your child. But like P.T., every now and then things go kind of crazy around you. You know, it's something spooky and weird and maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't kind of happens. And the world just sort of twists and turns around you. And again, it's a story about parenthood and, you know, domestic life gone wrong, that sort of thing which I will always be such a sucker for because it's, I don't know, it speaks so directly to things we don't really talk about in polite company. And I think that's why I like horror the most. Hmm. It sort of goes right for the jugular and it doesn't lie to you. You know, it's, it's the sort of thing that I feel like every human being knows fear. You know, not all of us necessarily know happiness or, or joy or love, but all of us know what it's like to be afraid. And when horror is done best, it makes you feel those emotions and it makes you feel them for reasons that maybe you've never felt them before, or maybe they are incredibly familiar, but it's really intense and it's really powerful. So I would definitely, definitely give all those a shot if you're interested in PT's influence on horror games. Okay. So like, tell me a little bit about like how, cause, cause that's a great point. Uh, sort of the, you know, tapping, tapping into that fear and, I'm curious how like and, and the things we don't talk about and I'm I, like I'm curious if you if you can without maybe compromising too many of the park's <laughs> tricks um you know t tell me like you know tell me a little bit about like how the park uh, what what the park is evoking Yeah absolutely so well again it's about a single mom and you know in her VO you know, she starts talking a little bit about the disappointments of being a parent and the things that you don't really talk about when you're a parent. And you, you know, you talk about, oh, my kid's so great. My kid did this. But she, you know, she very specifically, there's a line where she says something about like, you know, it's not all, it's not all that great all the time. You know, there are times where you feel guilty and there are times where you feel angry at your kid and you feel angry for the inconveniences in your life that they have sort of brought on to you. And I'm not a parent, but I'm pretty sure every parent has probably felt that at some point that, you know, this really sucks. <laughs> this whole parenting yeah. thing really sucks. And, you know, she, she talks about childbirth and she talks about like all these things that she's gone through to have this child. And of course, uh, again, like the Babadook, his birth came at a horrible time and, and the child's father was killed in a horrible accident and all this other stuff is kind of going on as well. So guilt is sort of wrapped in to the whole sort of emotional kind of well of, of being a parent as well. And it's really, really effective, even for someone who does not have a child. Like, I certainly know what family connections feel like. I know they can be pretty difficult sometimes. Right. And this just feels like it's speaking really directly and really honestly to that experience. Even though, of course, it's with all these trappings of walking around an abandoned theme park and, you know, there's a scary roller coaster and creepy things are happening. Um, but it feels really honest and it feels really sort of powerful in that way yeah and, and you know the park is based on the secret world if, yes. if i'm not mistaken and that's, that's actually right. one of the settings that really stuck out in my memory from from the secret world uh is the atlantic amusement park uh which is sort of the scene of some of the best early game quests in in uh the secret world 
where they they really nail that look of uh, sort of yeah. creepy, rundown uh, amusement park that never should have been constructed. Uh, yeah. So I, I'm definitely I'm definitely interested in this one, and even more interested hearing you say because my fear, like like looking at the trailers, my, my fear was that um, it was going to be kind of just a it was going to be a haunted house. You just sort of walk through it. And occasionally, your character basically, uh, you know, press X presses X to Jason. Yep. Uh, if you remember that joke around uh, <laughs> heavy rain, totally. Uh, so I'm I'm really interested to hear now that there's this undercurrent of this meditation on uh, parenthood and and the I guess the the resentments people don't feel they're allowed to voice. Yes, absolutely, and I think that's what it will stay with me about the park. Absolutely, you know. However long from now I'm thinking about it. And it also, I have to say, just, you know, from another perspective, I think it's really cool that Funcom has made this. They basically made, like, a cool short story in, you know, set in their game world. And it works really effectively. Like, what a, what a cool idea. Hey, you know, Halloween season, let's make a really cool horror short story, basically, and just put it out there as a standalone game. I I had not played The Secret World, but now I'm more interested in The Secret World because I've played this sort of interesting side story that takes place there. I see there's a rich world, and it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. As an aside, uh, you should totally play The Secret World. You should play with me. Oh yeah, uh, and and my and my partner because we have definitely like gotten hooked on it, and it is so up your alley. It is so Stephen nice. King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the totally. the entire thing is like the 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 entire first act of the game is just like wallowing and reveling in like New England north of Boston culture. Oh, perfect. Uh, yes. So, oh yeah, it's 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 fantastic. Like it's just a festival of accents and like gruff, yes. hard edged people, uh, sort of being completely unfazed <laughs> by a zombie apocalypse unfolding on Main Street. It's, it's I mean, that's awesome. perfect. That is how, you know, New Englanders would face these things. They would just treat it like it was another thing about the weather or something. Like, ah, Jesus. You believe this shit? I can't ah, believe this. Ah, shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, it would it'd really, be fantastic. It would be totally like that. Like, how, you know, it would be like the husband and wife sort of talking about, like, who has to shovel the snow versus who has to, you know, blow the zombies' heads off. You, did, you like, didn't barricade the goddamn door. I did last a goddamn time, zombie right? in here. <laughs> that's exactly what it'd be like. And that's what's great about New Englanders. Yeah. No matter what absolutely. you throw at us, we'll do something about it. No, we'll if I complain about be, it, but we'll do something about it. Yeah, you know, if I have to be anywhere for the end of the world, uh, I really hope I'm in Boston because yeah. it will be like the most reassuring way to face to face the death of mankind, yes. basically. Yes. It's absolutely well, this, right. Well, this just figures. <laughs> I've been telling you this is going to happen since 78. Yeah. I'm telling you. Uh, so... So what do you, what do you think are the talk about that mundanity and everything? But like, do you, do you see other lessons that that people are, are drawing from PT other way other ways it's inspired uh, developers? Yeah, absolutely. Sort of mundanity and also just sort of probing at uncomfortable family relationships as well. You know, in the story of PT, the father murdered the the family, and it was sort of you know domestic abuse was basically the the real yeah. theme. You know, the sort of real thing that was happening behind everything uh and i'm seeing so much of that in a lot of these smaller games that i'm playing i mentioned masochesia that's kind of the whole point of the game is whether or not you know the player has any choice in whether the player character becomes a killer and sort of continues a cycle of abuse uh and i think that's really interesting and actually you know i always love it when horror has sort of a real world 
kind of application or, or, or it, you know, touches on something special in the real world. I'd like to be able to say that Until Dawn sort of figures in some of that as well, and because that's another horror game I've been playing lately. Yeah. But um, that one's less PT and much more just a straight-up slasher. You know, slasher film yeah. kind of thing. Uh, but it's fun, too, and, and certainly worth mentioning. But yeah, also the recursive nature of the gameplay. Um, you know, sort of exploring the same places that are twisting on themselves a little bit. And in a game that really perfectly exemplifies that is Layers of Fear. This is a game from Bloober Team. They actually made that um, Basement Crawl, which is now Brawl, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a game um, sort of like a, a grimdark Bomberman almost. <laughs> uh, but Layers of Fear is a really, really awesome game that completely takes PT's uh, you know, sort of ability to, you know, you're going around these these rooms in this mansion and they're changing around you. And the architecture of the world is slowly changing around you as well. And, you know, it's all about jump scares. It's a little bit cheesy, but it's really, really effective because it's continually surprising you. You know, the paintings in the rooms are constantly changing. You know, the premise of that one is actually kind of cool, and I'll mention it just because it's sort of fun in a very Halloween-y, cheesy way. And that is that you are the, you know, you're a mad painter and you're sort of trying to get inspiration for your your masterwork. And so you go to different areas of the house and they all have like a different object that will inspire you to paint some horrifying monstrosity next, basically. Uh, It's a really fun little sort of haunted mansion kind of thing. But with that PT idea of, oh, yeah, the uh, architecture is subtly changing around you and you have no control over it and you have no idea what's going to happen next, Uh, which is really cool because obviously... The element of surprise is so important in a in a good piece of horror gaming, I guess <laughs> you would say. Yeah, uh, you know, just because it's on my mind, I wanted to, I wanted to bring it up. But like th- this point about like these these mundane settings and sort of uh, taking everyday fears and things we can't talk about and sort of bringing an exaggerated version of them out. I'm reminded of something that like Hitchcock said about uh, I, I think it may have been his favorite film, uh, Shadow of a Doubt. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Where, where he talked about how he felt he'd brought horror and suspense uh, back where it belonged, which was, of course, uh, the living room or, yes. or, or the home. And that, I think, was, was always a, a really clever insight that monsters monsters can be scary and, and, they're, and they're compelling they're, they're compelling adversary uh, because they're, they're, you know, the monster by nature is sort of mysterious and un- unstoppable. Uh, but... I love that in, like, Shadow of a Doubt, for instance, and, and it's kind of weird considering, like, there's often tones of misogyny in a lot of uh, Hitchcock's oh, work yeah. that yeah. I'm never certain whether he's aware of it or not. Because the central horror of Shadow of a Doubt is that nobody listens to a little girl. Right, right. Like, that, like she, she sees this guy come into her life, Uncle Charlie, and it becomes increasingly clear that Uncle Charlie is a very, very bad and dangerous man, possibly a serial killer. Yeah, and the entire thing is this invasion of the body snatchers type horror, where everyone thinks this guy is wonderful. He hung the moon, mm-hmm. and it's his favorite doting niece that's the first to tumble to the fact that there's something totally off about the guy. And so the entire movie, like nothing really changes at first. Like it's still this idyllic, like central California town. It's Main Street, USA, but everything about it becomes increasingly like unmoored and dissociated from our sense of reality. And so it takes on like this gothic off kilter tone just because the the main character and the and the villain Uncle Charlie 
are the only ones who are aware that all of this is a facade, all of it's rotting away beneath their feet. And it's, it's just, it, it's fantastic. And, and I, and I think that's, um, I think it's a very important thing that, that good horror, uh, can do. Like, like you said, yes. it is that ability to, it's the things that we have, we, we can't talk about, or we ha- can't even quite phrase, right? It's that sense yeah. of unease we have about the way things are. But we can't we we can't see it until you exaggerate it. I've said this a few times that I feel like horror is the only emotionally honest genre, or at least the only genre of media that is always emotionally honest. And I think that a lot of that has to do with that, with that it, that it actually sort of gives us a vocabulary to talk about certain things, or it gives us a vocabulary to to feel, you know, how to phrase our feelings almost about the things that really scare us and that really make us uneasy and really make us feel panicked. Like it's really, I don't know. And I, and I think that's part of why I've gotten more and more interested in horror. I'm super open about this, but I, you know, I have anxiety disorder and I really have have found it almost therapeutic to watch Mm. a lot of really terrifying horror movies and even playing alien isolation last year, my favorite game of last year which is a game that is basically a sustained panic attack over 25 hours, yeah. like, for sure. And and actually, uh, Daniel Link, uh, who's a writer, wrote a really awesome piece about sort of how alien isolation was therapeutic for him for the same exact reasons. He has panic disorder, and this is sort of like, you're actually able to face something, at least, when, when it's brought to light in horror. Mm-hmm. And it can be really, really helpful to kind of be able to do that, other than to just have this miasma of weird negativity that you can't really latch onto in any other way is a little like desensitizing because like, uh, so I don't have, like I have never hit a point where I, I meet a clinical definition of having anxiety. I (laughs) definitely have had genuine panic attacks. I have the textbook, like, um, you know, morbid thoughts convinced that I'm having like a heart attack and I'm a traumatic uh, physical experience. And uh, that actually led to some that there was like basically a six month period of my life where I was drinking really, really heavily because sure. at night yeah. that was the only way to feel normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, so I remember that feeling that that feeling very, very well. And I guess I'm curious because one of the things I was told is that a lot of times, like for people who suffer this on a, a more intense and like clinical level, uh, a lot of times you will even have the the physical effects come in as the triggers without yes. any other trigger without any like clear like this is you know there was nothing else that set it off it's just that your body went into overdrive that way and yeah. then the ball was rolling and you couldn't stop it do you think there's an element of like horror desensitizes you to that because it it puts you through that ringer and it triggers yes. all of that but it's in this like safe contained way yeah you can always turn the movie off or put the game down or put the book down or whatever it is uh but if you're making the choice to face it, it feels that's that's a really powerful thing. I know it sounds like a really small thing, but choosing to sort of face those emotions it is is awesome to be able to do that. Because when you're having a panic attack, as you know, you can't <laughs> just decide to turn anything off. You know, it's it's sort of happening to you. You're inside of it. Well, enough about the horrors of PT. So you've been playing Vermintide, I see? Uh, yeah, and talk about like 180 degrees from what we've been <laughs> talking about. Uh, I mean, certainly like, you know, it, around my house, it's a mundane domestic uh, fear that Skaven rat men <laughs> will burst through the basement and uh, slaughter, <laughs> slaughter my family. Uh, but I don't think it is for most people. 
so Vermintide is a game from Fat Shark, uh, and it is a new Warhammer fantasy game uh, that's basically like it's it's Left for Dead, uh, okay. but in, awesome. in the Warhammer fantasy universe with elements of like Payday. Uh, oh, that sounds pretty cool, actually. Yeah. Yeah, and it does sound pretty cool. Um, <laughs> so Vermintide is... Uh, I reviewed it for IGN, and I, I thought it was good, uh, but, but, but I never fell in love with it. And I, you know, I could have I assigned it probably a more generous score, you know, if that, if that sort of matters. But you know how it is, like, there's always that last element of just whether or not a game, like, emotionally resonated with you. Like, if yes. you just enjoyed the experience enough to be like, yeah, you know, that feeling that's like, well, it is, it is the greater than the sum of its parts, right? And so you just sort of give it the nod that, like, yeah, there's all these things. But it's actually a little better. Better yes. than that. Uh, and, and where I came out is that it was, it, you know, it, it was exactly the sum of its parts, maybe a little bit less. Hmm. And part of that is... Vermintide is is very well made uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, so you each mission uh, you 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 choose from a cast of like Warhammer fantasy heroes. Uh, so there's a witch hunter that carries dual wield pistols and a rapier. Uh, there's an elf that sort of has a machine gun bow. Uh, there's a, there's uh, you know an, an imperial soldier uh, that's sort of a you know carries a huge shield and a sword and uh, a, a giant musket, but They'll play different roles, and you go through these missions, and uh, it's just like Left 4 Dead. You sort of go from point A to point B, and maybe at point B you have to do a whole song and dance uh, around some objectives. Uh, and then you escape, and that's that's largely the game. And it's just one of those... It was one of those things where like it just seemed like it should have worked brilliantly, Yeah. but... Instead, it kept reminding me of how good Left 4 Dead was <laughs> and how much less interesting this game was. God, Left 4 Dead was amazing. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like it was ahead of its time, even though it was, what, eight years ago now? Seven years ago? It's been a like long that? time since yeah. Left 4 Dead 2. Yeah, I mean, okay, so, so in what ways does it kind of fall short for you? Because it sounds like the pieces are there, but they're just not gelling in any special way yeah and i think part of it is um the game is bite-sized in, in <laughs> some ways like each mission is like one stage of a left for dead campaign basically but what gets missed there is that the left for dead campaign structure was actually kind of brilliant because yeah, yeah each each stage was was fairly short but the entire campaign could take like an hour and a half to get through uh, it, it was a real commitment to sit down and, and, and play through one of those campaigns. And there was this entire economy around it, this economy of resources, of health, of ammunition, of, uh, you know, of, of how you're going to get through this, the tools you need to get through it. And so each stage sort of chained into the next, and you had to think about what you'd be bringing. Uh, and in, in Vermintide, you don't quite have that feeling. Uh, you, you kind of use up all your resources within each stage, and uh, you don't have to worry too much about uh, saving anything for later. Uh, but th but then the other element is, you know, it, it's just um, I never felt like there were that many interesting setups uh, for uh, for for combat or or set piece uh, set, set piece uh, action sequences, and so like. One of the great things about League of Left 4 Dead 
is that I remember constantly you and your team would have to sort of coordinate what you wanted to do. Uh, yeah. And you had time to stop. And you had time to think about, like, okay, so when we hit this next area, here's how we need to proceed through it. Uh, and in Vermintide, it feels like you're all, you're kind of constantly engaged. You're always fighting. Uh, sure. And you're, you're fighting these Skaven who, who have weapons. Uh, and so they're a little bit more substantial, I guess, than zombies, uh, although they still die really easily. But <laughs> it's just... Um, it ends up being a more mechanically demanding game, like in terms of individual skill. Yeah. Uh, but the way it gets harder is they just overwhelm you uh, more and more with how much each character has to be responsible for. And it ramps up very quickly. So, like, the difference between, like, normal and hard, it's not that you have, like, the sense that there's an AI director making things more diabolical. Like, you're getting caught <laughs> while... Like, a, a horde is yeah. triggering while people are searching or anything like that. Instead, it just feels like, oh, so you just put a ton more Skaven on the map all at once <laughs> and sure. spawned a bunch more uh, specials. Which, by the way, the specials, uh, the, the special attackers <laughs> are taken, like, straight out of, out of Left 4 Dead. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty much one for one. Uh, there's the jumper, the, 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 the grabber, uh, the tank, all stuff like that. That's, that's all <laughs> yeah. there. So yeah, it, it just comes out as this, um, you know, it's, it's, it just ends up being kind of unsatisfying. And I think where, where it really falls down is it just doesn't have that, um, that sense of suspense that, that left for dead has. This, this feels like kind of a, a combat grind, uh, through each level and left for dead, I think always felt like. Left 4 Dead was really good at getting me in that moment where I was sort of living my zombie movie. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say Left 4 Dead it, always, and I was never very good at it, but it always really had an incredible sense of you were in a horror experience. You happened to have a gun, you were powerful, certainly, and you could do something about it, but it was always scary. You never felt like you were completely on top of any situation at any point, and that was, was so awesome about it. Yeah, and there were there were all these ways, like, Left 4 Dead would sort of, it would put things in your path that really forced you to think about how you wanted to handle it, right? Like, yeah. um, just picking your way through a field of cars where one of them is tripped, is, is alarmed, right? Yeah. That creates this thing, and nine times out of ten, like, a good party can avoid that car. Like, you're not going to trigger that alarm. But it's not something you can discount, either. Yes. Uh, the the fact of like a witch just like sitting in a doorway like totally yeah like again you can't avoid her but it becomes this focal point for attention this thing that absolutely must be avoided and what you end up with in 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 this game i think is just much more of um well we bet we better just keep going and then oh well there's a horde coming everyone get in a group and <laughs> play your role and that's not as, you know, you need to create, I think, more ways for the party to screw up. Uh, like, Left for Dead, like, I feel like parties were always, even though everyone knew, it was like, it was classic horror logic. Don't split up. Everyone should stay together. And yet, <laughs> somehow, there was always a reason why one or two people had to wander off. <laughs> yeah, always. It, it feels like Valve should, I don't know, Valve should really be making games more often. It's what this kind of sounds like, you know, like what, you know, <clears throat> nobody's really made a good left for dead game. 
since Left for Dead. And and that's weird because it was such a hit and it had its own sequel a year later and all this other stuff and it felt like such a zeitgeist and then nobody's really made another good one. Uh, which no, is and it seems like it should have been easy to copy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the pieces are all there. I mean, certainly this is, you know, armchair game designer, you know, the pieces are all kind of visible and and you know i could see what they are certainly but why why don't we have another good one at this point i I wonder i wonder if part of it is my understanding and and certainly it felt that way at the time was that like the first left for dead was kind of a pc first game i feel and it always Mm -hmm. felt like a really tight responsive shooter um but a lot of games feel like they're a little bit... I don't know. There's there, there's a weird difference. Well, just console... <laughs> console dummy the down. Way character, no, it's just the way characters move. Just like there's a certain like inertia mm-hmm. to console shooter characters that I don't think is necessarily there uh, with with like your, your typical PC shooter. Uh, everyone is very everything's very fast and responsive in uh, in, in Left 4 Dead. So the the focus was always always on the enemy, uh, and and maybe also it was just like it was so stripped down. Like it had to be inherently rewarding to run these missions again and again because there was nothing else. Like it was never going to yeah. change. Yeah. But in Vermintide, in Vermintide, the entire thing's kind of structured around loot chase. So that's the other part of this is at the end of each mission you get drops. And some of it's actually really cleverly implemented. Like, you can scour the map and find things that will improve the odds of getting a good drop. And mm. then you'll have a really cool weapon or something to bring with you on your next mission. Uh, but we've, we've seen this elsewhere. Like, uh, Payday, uh, the, you know, so, so Payday 2 especially, adopted this model of all your characters can get better. And do these different things. And, like, you can run more advanced, like, tactics and strategies for each mission. But at the start, everyone can't do... Like, nobody can do jack. Like, everyone just has a gun. (laughs) And so, like, Payday was kind of like, okay, so we'll be like Left 4 Dead. We'll have a handful of missions. Um, But they won't actually be that inherently rewarding. They won't be that inherently fun. Uh, (laughs) But to make up for that, we're going to make you run them 200 freaking times. Uh, to, mm. to sort of open up what's possible for your characters. And that's, I think, kind of different. I think this is... There's this there's this trend in game design where, like, if you can create the sort of, like, slot machine mechanics, right? Like, random drop, stuff like that. You can absolutely get people playing a lot of that game. Like, yeah. it will work its magic. But it also runs the risk of sort of, I, I think, being deceptive as to how good the minute-to-minute experience of it is and i feel like in vermintide i never really fell in love with that experience and most of my sessions ended with me just kind of being like well you know i'm 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 completely done with this i don't want to play it anymore and left for dead usually my sessions ended because i had to go to bed right (laughs) yeah yeah oh my god i i just feel like you absolutely nailed it when you said that about you know sort of feeling like the moment to moment is almost like a slot machine as opposed to being a really compelling experience that you're inside of Whenever my brain is thinking more about sort of the, what's the opposite of intrinsic? Why can't I? Yeah, extrinsic. This word happen? Right, right. Sorry. <clears throat> Whenever my brain is thinking about like extrinsic rewards as opposed to what I'm doing right there in the moment, I, you've already lost me, basically, uh, as a gamer. And maybe maybe I'm more fickle than most, but that's definitely 
what will sort of kill something for me. Like if you make that entire design transparent and, and don't really cloak it in something really meaty and really interesting, I will probably fall off of a game in you know inside of an hour what do you think made left for dead successful uh by those lights because like if you boil it down it was super simple yeah um, and actually there's probably less like there was less mechanical depth to left for dead compared to vermintide uh vermintide like has interesting character classes and and, and sort of a higher skill ceiling for each for each character class i'm curious like because I'm a little, because I, because I, I know, I, I feel it, but I'm curious, like, how do you think Left 4 Dead, what, what do you, why do you think it was intrinsically rewarding in a way that, like, more complicated games that have come along since just haven't been? I probably can't pinpoint exactly what it was, but I can tell you why it stuck with me and why I think it stuck with so many people. And that's because it always gave you really kind of amazing stories as you were going, as you were playing the fact that it changed so often, it had the, the AI director that obviously was a huge part of it. But everybody that played that game, I feel like, especially in the, the first game and sort of the first few months of it, had 10 stories to tell you every time they played the game. You know, it was, oh my god, I was doing this, and then oh my god, there was a witch, and then, oh, you know, it was just this feeling of breathless excitement about the experience itself. And there's something to that, and I can't really pinpoint why that was, but... Yeah, it, it's it's this certain special quality in some games that that sort of just give you this experience you want to tell everyone about and want everybody else to experience it for themselves and that sort of excitement. I I don't know what it was about the design of that game, but it did it really really ridiculously well. Yeah, I I think for me there a couple elements was definitely like yeah the fact it was always a little different each time that like sometimes a door would be open and sometimes it wouldn't and a passage yeah. would be closed or it could arrange the levels subtle in these subtly different ways uh to to make it a little a little more tense and i think uh, another aspect was that um there was a lot of environmental storytelling in yes. left for dead like yeah. i don't know it was, it was just kind of this like the, the, each level had this character to it and there were these weird little vignettes so like you know, in 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 the hospital, in, in the No Mercy mission, uh, mm -hmm. all the zombies are wearing gowns, and it's clear that like this ER is kind of like Ground Zero, as yeah. where it all went to hell. Um, you know, you're going through the, um, you know, you're you're going through the airport, right? And like, you know, the 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 first thing that happens as you come out uh, onto the onto the tarmac is that a plane is coming in for a landing and right at that moment, clearly like something happens aboard the plane and it crashes. And it's this big yeah. set piece that you remember, but there's, there's all these things, these moments where it tells you the story of this world uh, and, and sort of how the world ended. And so it was an interesting world to explore again and again and like, look at the details and enjoy how it like built the, built the world. And I think, I think left for dead too, may have even been better at that. Right. Yeah. With its sort of portrayal of like, uh, a, a botched female response and, and things like that, but it's it's stuff that like Left for Dead had that sadly Vermintide just just doesn't, and I think it, yeah. it, it could be as rich a place for storytelling, but it's it's just not. Yeah, I, that's so much of it. That's so much part of it. And I know everybody plays games for different reasons, but I definitely play games to be in another place or in another world, yeah. and you know to really really feel transported. Uh, so for me, that's totally what it was <laughs> with that game. 
Well, we actually have a reader mail that, that ties really closely into all the things we've been talking about today. Do you, do you want to read it? Do you, should I read it? Sorry. Uh, I'll read <laughs> it. Just... Uh, I'll take it. Uh, okay, so I'll... this is, this is from Furnace and it says, uh, I was wondering if you had noticed horror games diverging into two distinct groups as of late. With earlier games, like Resident Evil 1, you had a very unsettling atmosphere coupled with limited defensive ability. I feel that this changed around Resident Evil 4, where the atmosphere of solitude and fear remained with scenes such as the dog maze, but you became a zombie whale-killing badass. <laughs> now, more currently, horror games seem to have this seem to have split this style of game into two distinct ones. On the one hand, you have a very creepy atmosphere with your only defense being to run away from from whatever chases you. On the other, you have games like Left 4 Dead 2 where you become the angel of death to any zombie unfortunate enough to cross <laughs> your path. While Left 4 Dead 2 is certainly extreme, most horror shooters are situated somewhere between it and Resident Evil 4. Stalker mm. is one series off the top of my head that is much closer to a creepy shooter, but again, you are still practically a super soldier. Uh, as far as I'm aware, there's nothing being made currently that gives the limited defense experience of earlier Resident Evils. Uh, this is just my personal view, but honestly, I'm fairly young and do not have a very deep knowledge of horror games. Uh, I'm too much of a wuss to play the really scary ones, and to be honest, I have only played the fourth Resident Evil, though I plan on playing the first one soon. The majority of my knowledge is secondhand uh, that I've absorbed from conversations online these days about other games. I was wondering if you guys with actual experience in the industry also see this, or if it's just a matter of me not being aware of it uh, now that the genre has progressed. Uh, do you see this as a trend as well? Uh, what's your opinion? Oh, man. Well, the first thing I thought of when I was reading this letter was uh, The Evil Within, <laughs> which was sort of a, a spiritual successor to Resident Evil that kind of has that middle ground sensibility to it where it is actually really terrifying and you you sometimes you do have to run away from danger but also you're typically given enough weapons to kind of deal with things and that felt like a little bit of that middle ground but i definitely understand what this person is saying and i you know i, I do think they're right i do think in general that horror games have been kind of split off and a lot of it actually has to do with budget i think you know a few years ago we got amnesia which is you know an indie game and a really revolutionary game that kind of said, hey, combat, you know, whatever, we don't need it. <laughs> a really scary game in a really, really, truly terrifying atmosphere, that's all you need for a really awesome, immersive horror experience. Not long before that, we had sort of the Dead Space games, which went completely in the other direction, where they're really scary, but it's all about you being kind of a badass. And, of course, like this person is saying, the Resident Evil games, really going in a more action-oriented direction, as opposed to the sort of more horror-oriented direction. So yeah, it is definitely something I'm seeing a lot of. Um, I love both approaches, and I love that sort of middle ground approach. Um, and it is a little sad, maybe, that we're not seeing as much in the middle ground, but I am really glad that a lot of smaller teams are making really awesome horror experiences now. And, you know, even single-person teams are making really cool horror experiences. I played another game recently called finger bones that was made by one person and it scared the crap out of me and disturbed me and that was pretty awesome because it's you know one person's work so yeah I, I think you're definitely right and and uh i don't, I don't know i want to see horror made in every imaginable <laughs> end of the spectrum basically what do you think rob yeah so i mean i agree i think the phenomenon is real uh i think it's it's definitely happening and I think there's a few things that, that contribute to it. Uh, one, I just think middle grounds can be hard to stick, uh, especially yeah. in this 
especially when it comes to horror, uh, horror shooters, uh, for instance, because the thing is, like, basically you're trying to find the sweet spot uh, the between lack of power uh, yeah. and then also, like, the, the shooter power fantasy. So on the one hand, you have to be able to uh, kill the enemies. On the other hand, they also have to scare the hell out of you. And that's really <laughs> yeah. difficult because, like, if you are... If you have cool weapons, because shooters are driven by, like, it feels good to shoot things. You find cool weapons, new items, new new ways to, to kill the enemies. Uh, and, and so that kind of runs counter to the nature of horror. And I think the my quintessential example for a game that, like, uh, completely impaled itself on the horns of this dilemma. <laughs> and I think it's still a great game, by the way. One of the great, like, uh, first-person shooters ever made uh, was Fear. Uh, yeah. The original Fear was brilliant uh, as a shooter. Uh, the the enemy squads that showed up, the the controls, uh, it just it, it felt fantastic, and it was really creepy. It was all uh, borrowing this this uh, this J these J horror tropes. Uh, you had the little girl from uh, The Ring, basically. Wandering oh yeah, around the Alma. Game. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it was all derivative as hell, but it was still really well executed and and, and spooky as hell uh, until. Until you realize two things. One, the really scary stuff wouldn't ever hurt you. Uh, yeah. Because it didn't exist within the game systems. Once Alma showed up, you just ran away from her. But it was always scripted. So, like, hey, hey, here's the trick. Don't let the little girl touch you. Uh, and then you won't die. <laughs> and then it, yeah. it culminates in this sort of run through this uh, underground nuclear reactor. Or research facility or whatever. Where ghosts are, are coming out of the other world to attack you. And you shoot them with your guns. Of course you do. And they pop like balloons. <laughs> and so it's like once you one like and so like the entire game is this badass commando, and everything you meet basically either doesn't exist within the game mechanics, or if it does, you can just blast the shit out of it with with whatever you have to hand, and you're yeah. not going to be able to sustain suspense that way. And so that middle ground is just is is really difficult to sustain, and especially because. It's easy to, like, when people reminisce, reminisce about Resident Evil now, it's easy to forget through the rose-tinted lenses mm -hmm. how much that game pissed people off. Oh, and my God, yeah. The tank controls, because like, <laughs> bad controls were part of that game's suspense. You couldn't, yep. like, the weird camera angles, like, you never had a great situational awareness. You couldn't respond to things very well. Uh, it just, it, it felt really janky and crappy. And it, a lot of people hated it. Uh, it's only in retrospect as it achieves this classic status that people are like, man, it really nailed that balance between being able to like shoot yeah. things and not. It's totally, totally true. And I feel like so much of this is, is just sort of finding a, a, a really smart design solution to the idea that, you know, combat should be fun and interesting and perhaps not be overpowering. And I think one series that does a really good job with this and again, oh my god, I've been playing so many horror games. But the Fatal Frame series, which has a, a brand new entry on the Wii U, actually does a really great job of making combat fun in a completely terrifying horror experience. And the way it does that is that if you're unfamiliar with the, the uh, series, you have, a, you have a camera. It's called the Camera Obscura. And you fight ghosts by taking their pictures. And right. you get, you know, certain points and certain buffs and so on and so forth for taking good photos of these horrific you know, apparitions as they attack you. 
and in that way, it's just it's just a really smart way of sort of making that work. You know, instead of giving you an overpowered gun, it's like, well, no, you have a camera, and that the only way you're going to survive is if you sort of leave yourself open to these spirits coming really close to you so you can get the better picture. So I don't think this is a problem that is, you know, insurmountable in any way. It's just... It's just really tough. You know, that's a very creative solution to the problem, and it's kind of the only example I can think of that really makes combat fun in a horror game, basically. Yeah. I, I need to play the the, um, the Dead Space series, because my understanding is at least the first one uh, yeah. really gets that right, and I never did I never did get around to that, and I, I understand that it, it did a very good job of... It, it's pretty combat-heavy. It uh, is, yes. It's, it's, it's pretty freaking awful, too. Yeah, it's it's a pretty awesome game, I have to say. And I actually, the thing I liked the most in that game were actually the puzzles, believe it or not, the sort of you know gravity flipping stuff. But you know, that's that's me. That's probably yeah. what I would like better in something like that, anyway. Uh, so he, he cites the Stalker series, uh, and I'm not sure I'd agree that you're practically a super soldier. You are by the end of the game, certainly. After you've gathered a bunch of uh, around the world, you can gather these like alien artifacts, basically that give you certain buffs. Uh, but mm. a lot of them, you also need really high-end gear just to be able to use them, uh, because a lot of them are poisonous. Uh, so you need like oh, yeah. really high-end like uh, anti-radiation gear, for instance, uh, to even utilize some of these objects. But yeah, there is a point where the game's power curve eventually breaks, and this is the other issue with a lot of shooters: you have to progress. Right. So, if you're constantly giving the player better armor, better tools, uh, what are you doing to make sure that like adversaries remain threatening and scary? But Stalker, um, Stalker, I think works because fundamentally it's about learning how to navigate an environment. Like the environment itself is your adversary. And it's about learning how to read it and anticipate where the threats are. And I'll give you an example because this is like one of the scariest, one of the scariest goddamn things that's ever happened to me in a video game. And therefore <laughs> yeah. one of my favorite, favorite video game memories of all time. Uh, so in Stalker, and this is the original Stalker, and I was playing with the, with the Stalker Complete mod. Uh, but I was, I hit this new area and I was, I was about to raid this uh, refinery being guarded by this sort of army of, of bandits. Uh, but but first, well, it, was a, it was a rundown factory. But first, I went across the street uh, to recon the area, and there was this uh, like motor pool garage basically uh, across the street from the factory that had a had a rooftop that I was going to be able to use to survey the area, and it was completely unguarded by the bandits. So I go in there. I'm going around this uh, you know empty abandoned uh, like. Uh, you know, gray collar office building, right? Mm. Like this is this is clearly just where like the the truck drivers and the supervisors hung out, yeah. and it's it's all run down, it's all gone to hell. But what's weird is that there's blood streaks everywhere, and I'm like, oh god, not another like this this, <laughs> this trope again, like this yeah. shit, like because because at this point, like it, it's kind of like crappy video game level design, environmental storytelling one hundred and one, right? Like, oh, how do you make yeah. this place scary? Eh, the dumb just, graffiti, yeah. yeah, exactly, blood <laughs> graffiti, yeah, just like pour it all over. So I'm, so I just ignore it, and I'm just exploring this place, and there's these blood streaks all up on the second floor, where bodies have been dragged around, clearly. Uh, but I turn a corner, uh, and I'm looking at a closet full of corpses. Oh, and I'm God. like, okay. <laughs> okay, probably just a creepy monster, like, ooh, like it's a pile <laughs> of corpses, uh, whatever. Yeah. So I walk in there, and 
I go into the closet and I try to get to the corner to like I see something there, uh, maybe to pick up. I don't remember even why I tried to do it, but I try to walk there, and I run into an invisible wall. Oh no! And I'm like, what a janky ass game. <laughs> and then I re- then the texture sort of shifts, and I realize it's a translucent texture, oh. and I'm not running into a wall. I've run into a monster. Oh, I've God. run into an invisible monster. And it sort of fades in as it becomes aware of me. And it's crouched over the bodies feeding. Oh, my God. Uh, and it fades in and turns on me and rears up. And I screamed. Oh. Like, I just legitimately, like, I just freaked out. And yeah. had the most honest, like, first-person shooter reaction. Just, like, screaming, like, gun out, <laughs> backpedaling. Just, like, firing wildly to kill this thing. It's just, like, ripping the <laughs> ripping the hell out of me. And I, like, my pistol goes dry and I realize, like, wait, I have a freaking shotgun. Use the shotgun. And I'm, like, fumbling with my keyboard trying to get the right weapon out. And I accidentally, <laughs> like, try to reload the pistol. And I'm like, no, fuck the pistol. Get the shotgun. And I, and I kill this thing. Uh, just like a split second before it kills me. Oh my god. And then I realize, like, I just learned how this world works. Because it turns out that monster, and I've been told this by other characters, it was a bloodsucker. And the thing about the bloodsuckers is that they like to gather their prey and go eat it. Like, I had been told there there were these things that dragged bodies around the world and, like, you know, took them to the lair and, and, and ate them. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, whatever. That's just that's just invi- that's just like that's flavor text. That's nothing. That's not real. <laughs> and I ignored all the signs in this environment that I'd wandered into one of their freaking layers. Oh my god. And from that point on, I understood that like, oh god. Like this is a world that will constantly be threatening and I have to like keep my head up and pay attention to the signs because if I miss them, this is going to happen again. So, I mean, that's, uh, like, that's, I think that's one way you do it, is, like, you know, you, 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 and I think the Stalker series sort of realism uh, aided it in this regard. It's actually not that far removed from a series like a Red Orchestra, which is a really hardcore, mm. realistic military shooter. Uh, Stalker follows the similar rules, and so you're not, you have good weapons, but they're not, like, magic machine guns or anything like that. Like, you know, they, they'll, they'll miss, uh, they have their drawbacks. Um, and you know, it's, it's basically like if you took a really badass commando and put them into a world full of like mon- like monsters that stalked and hunted humans, uh, like what's going to happen? How's that going to look? How do you have to survive? And stalker is kind of the answer. And I, I think that's one of the reasons it's become so effective is that, yeah, you have capabilities, but they're nowhere near good enough to make you more powerful than the environment. They only give you the tools to navigate the environment. Yeah, that's brilliant. Can I ask you a dumb question about Stalker? Rob? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the only thing I know about it, uh, it, you know, is sort of what you're telling me now and, and sort of the, the most general understanding of what it is, but is, is there any connection to the Tarkovsky film? Yes. Okay, cool. Uh, I mean, there's not like, there there is not a literal um, connection. It's not like the tie-in or anything like that. Sure, sure. Uh, it is absolutely... Um, like the entire concept of the stalker, right? The yeah. uh, the, the loner who can wander this hostile wasteland that uh, that uh, that will eat other people, basically. Um, that's that's what the game is about. Okay. Uh, cool. So the the stalkers themselves exist, and the atmosphere and the visual style of it totally Tarkovsky. Nice. Uh, so yeah, and seriously, if you haven't played it, um, 
like for my money, like honestly, there's like there's Half Life, and then I guess there's Bioshock, sure. and then there's Stalker, and those are like the three seminal like shooters for me that like nice. everything refers to. Wow. Okay, that's a pretty awesome endorsement. I I like the sound of that. Yeah. Well, it's, with, it's, yeah. it's 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 point we'll have to do uh like uh, like I, I I it's been a while since I've looked at the state of the mod scene because those series those games were kind of janky when they came out. Sure. Uh, Call of Pripyat is generally regarded as 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 the best, uh, but I really loved the original Stalker, uh, and and with a few mods, I, I think it's um I think it's really something. I think there's a lot that you'd like. I think I'll need to give it a go then. Yeah. Uh, so as we as we turn to the weekend, um, you know, I guess I, I guess I'm curious. Like, what are you going to be uh, spending your time on? What uh, what are our squad goals this weekend? <laughs> squad goals. Well, let's see. I am continuing to finish up sort of my my Halloween October reading with the Shining, the original Stephen King novel, which uh, I won't go into for too long, but I will say. I really love it, and I really just love uh, Stephen King's just New Englander sensibility as a writer. It's it's something that, you know, going to California and then kind of coming back here, it's something I, I notice more now than I never noticed before. I'm loving that. I'm reading another book that is seasonally appropriate. Uh, it's the only nonfiction book Patricia Cornwell has written so far, I believe, and it is Jack the Ripper, Case Closed, and it's actually sort of a nonfiction uh, forensic analysis of the Jack the Ripper case. Uh, and I'm really enjoying it. And it's, you know, horrifying because it's nonfiction. Uh, and, and the one thing I'll say about that is that, it, my God, everything about Victorian London is uh, the most horrific <laughs> thing I can imagine. And it's all completely, you know, true to life. Uh, sort of the descriptions of, of just normal, you know, surgery, of, of what surgery in the medical profession were, in the 1870s or so, before the actual cases, it yeah. are just, man, that is, that is some rough, have, rough stuff. <laughs> have you seen The Nick? No, not yet, but everyone is oh, telling dude. me that I, yeah. I need to go. Yeah, I, I, I love it, because it, it takes place uh, at that exact time where, particularly with surgery, right, where you're basically yeah. at the dividing line between modern medicine and educated butchery. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's this really fascinating, like, you know, just a year or two before the story, people are basically just sort of, like, getting the, the cleavers and the saws and the scalpels uh, out and just sort yep. of poking at stuff and doing their best. <laughs> uh, and they kind of are doing that still on their way to discovering how to actually perform surgery with, like, predictable good outcomes. Yeah, it's it's so completely insane. I won't go on and on about it or anything, but uh, the description of surgery from the 1860s when the... You know, the person that she thinks is the killer was actually uh, operated upon as a as a child is just is really the most horrific oh. thing I've, I think I've ever read. It's just and it, this is these are the professionals, you yeah. know, and they and they wore instead of any kind of surgical coats, they wore these disgusting black coats that were just caked in people's blood, and like the the chance of infection was like incredible. And it's man, oh man. I, I I think people lived better when they lived in caves and had barely discovered fire than than they did in sort of Victorian era Europe, basically. Yeah, the the industrialization, like the the rise of the the huge met metropolis, happens so far far before like mankind is really capable of 
of managing that kind of density. Yeah. Uh, so you, you recommend it because uh, I because I think I like do. I'm one of those people that like oh Patricia Cornwell I see her books at the airport. Eh. I know I know I know and it's a very accessible book. It's not you know steeped in any kind of uh, particularly difficult language by any means. But she actually does have a real background as a. Uh, I don't know what her exact job was, but she did live work in an actual forensic department for a long time and was, uh, you know, an investigative journalist for a time as well. So she did have an actual background in in doing some of this work. And she presents a very compelling case, I think, for for who the killer actually was. Again, this is this is not my my sort of my fiction reading. And normally I'm I'm pretty much just reading fiction. But uh, yeah, I'm enjoying it, especially for the season, especially good little Halloween time. Uh, so one thing I've, I, I've sort of gotten into and I'm, I'm still a little ambivalent about it, but there's a, uh, like suspense horror podcast series called Limetown. Oh, uh, th- that's out there and was actually, I think partly written by Chris plant, uh, from, uh, oh, formerly Polygon and yeah. the verge. Uh, and I think Tracy Lien even has a cameo in it. So, oh, there's, some, so there's some great people involved, yeah. but it's basically like someone is like, Hey, what if somebody made cereal? But about a creepy town where a science experiment went wrong and everyone vanished overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's actually like a format appropriate, everyone's gone to the rapture. Yes. Uh, <laughs> sorry. That <laughs> That's really, awesome. That really mean, but... <laughs> no, no, I think it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so it's... it's 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 pretty cool. I'm, I'm I'm not sure. Like there are times I feel it's a little overwrought, but fundamentally, I'm. It is a cool conceit. Like you got this journalist basically like investigating what happened in this like Tennessee town. Uh, that like this one night, like there was a flood of nine one one calls uh, from people like begging to to be rescued and, and saved, uh, and then the army seals off the entire area, and then everyone's gone uh, within a few days, never to be seen again. Uh, and it's sort of this investigation ten years later as to how the hell this town uh, just vanished. So that's been that's been pretty cool, and I'm not sure all the episodes are out yet. Uh, I'm only up to the second one, uh, but it's but it's been fun to get into. Um, I also uh, I also saw the Steve Jobs movie uh, this week. Yeah, I wanted Sorkin to one. ask you about that. How was it? I really liked it. Yeah, but the thing you need to understand about me is I really like Aaron Sorkin. Like, okay. and I understand. I understand there's <laughs> arguments against Aaron Sorkin. And, like, God knows. Like, this is the thing. God help me. I know the newsroom was really bad. And sure, sure. really, like, just full of, like, toxic, horrible characters and, like, <laughs> misogynist mans- mansplaining douchebags and all of that. Like, I understand it completely. Yeah. Don't care. Still enjoyed it. <laughs> I still, like, I, I was like... <laughs> Watched all three seasons of the newsroom and was like, yep, this is pretty mediocre, but, you know, even bad Aaron Sorkin is still Aaron Sorkin. So I'm a sucker for the way his characters, like, speak and talk. And where it misses the mark, it does become insufferable. And a lot of times, like, in the newsroom and Studio 60, uh, it was. Here, I think you're dealing with characters that maybe are better suited to, like, the Aaron Sorkin uh, approach to dialogue. Sure. Uh, So, I mean, it's... Like, it is, like, basically just one <laughs> charged conversation after another uh, between Steve Jobs and someone else from... It, it's, like, it, yeah. like it, it's, it's, it's a triptych of three product launches, uh, but then around each one, 
He's visited basically by the ghosts of um, Apple past, present, and future. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, and it's 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 a really it, it actually completely works. And I also just love it's a it's a flashy stylistic trick. Uh, but um, each stage of the film is shot and scored uh, according to the setting and the time. Oh, interesting. Uh, so the first the first act is shot, I think, on like. 16 millimeter film and it's all grainy and it's like uh got that sort of yellow tinted quality that a lot of like the film stock from the late 70s early 80s had uh and then the second one is like crisp clear like 35 millimeter film set in the uh, uh i want to say the the boston symphony hall uh, for the launch of the next and then the final one is shot digital uh for the launch mm. of the imac and the the music changes uh for each one you know it's you know, basically, like, you, you have one, like, it's one confrontation between these characters after another, uh, sort of tracking how their relationships have changed. And I absolutely adored it. And and the thing I struggle with, though, mm-hmm. is that the movie, on the one hand, is, is basically, like, has this message that, like, you know, Steve Jobs could be a really impossible and horrible person to work with. <laughs> um, sure. And it's still really seductive. You know what I mean? Like, I think yeah, we're, yeah. I, I'm a little uncomfortable with the fact that like, as a culture, we almost seem addicted to stories of like geniuses being like antisocial assholes. Sure. Yeah. And I guess like, I, 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 what I have not worked through is whether or not Steve Jobs is beautiful poison as a film. Sure. Sure. I but, felt that way about Gone Girl, certainly. Really? Yeah. Beautiful, the beautiful poison thing where, you know, yeah. you love the movie, but, uh, and you love the craft of the filmmaking, perhaps, and the experience of watching it, but you're like, oh, this has a horrible message, and this yeah. is bad for everyone. And yet, fundamentally, <laughs> I know I will always enjoy Beautiful Poison, and I will yeah. probably watch it again. You know what I mean? Like, totally. I'll even be aware of it, but I'll be like, you know what? I'm just going to say, I'm going to allow myself this treat. That's I, right. I'm going to use it sensibly. Like, I'm not going to let myself be seduced by, like, the subtext of the film. But I'm going to enjoy the, the, the style of it. Yes. But, yeah. So, I, I don't know. It's it's I think it's, I think it's well worth seeing. And uh, especially if you're someone who, like, you know, for you, the height of entertainment was like characters walking and talking around the set of Sports Night or the West Wing. Uh, <laughs> boy, has your ship come in. <laughs> yeah, I kind of actually dig that. So I, I might like this. I mean, I certainly have, have heard mixed mixed reviews, but uh, hearing your endorsement for it and your reasons for it, I think I might give it a shot. Yeah, I, I'd be really curious to hear what you think because, uh, again, I'm I'm still working through what what I think of that film myself. So, with that, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show at IdleWeekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at IdleWeekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at IdleWeekend. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of idle weekends. Oh, I love that. Perfect. That was great. <laughs> that just came out. I don't know. No, it was, it was, I, I love it. That was, that was exactly what I want. Okay, cool. Awesome.